Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. With me today is David Marin, a global forecaster. The subject for this podcast is mega trends and market trends. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of high quality and differentiated independent research and alternative data providers from around the world, both micro and macro. Some are stock pickers, some sector specific, some country specific, many are global, and all are investment related. We are living in changing and challenging times. The world is getting hotter. This is now marching to the dreadful drumbeat of war. Global investors have much to contemplate, not only in Russia, Ukraine and elsewhere in Europe, but also in Asia and the Americas, particularly in China and the United States. The outlook for financial markets is being plagued by an extra degree of uncertainty in bond, equity and commodity markets. Now more than ever, asset allocators need to heed the lessons of history. I'm therefore particularly pleased that we're joined today by David Murren, the founder of Global Forecaster, who has done more than most to link long-run historic trends and human behaviour to successful short-term and long-term investment decisions. David Murren is a polymath who is renowned for his development of a unique and effective set of behavioural models whilst at JP Morgan that have been used to predict financial markets in an effective and profitable way. Based initially on his experience in oil exploration amongst the tribes people of Papua New Guinea, these behavioural models provided the foundation for his multi-decade career in the hedge fund industry. Global Forecaster provides actionable real-time market analysis combined with a unique geopolitical overview with a focus on profitable asset allocation. The Global Forecaster service is designed to provide medium, medium-term and long-term investment outlooks that challenge the market consensus in a range of markets, including stocks, bonds, commodities and currencies. Geopolitical calls and market calls are made only when significant opportunities are located and structured within a risk framework. David, welcome back to the IRF podcast. Let's start with a brief introduction to the service that is provided by Global Forecaster. Hi, David. It's a pleasure to be back with you, and thank you for your kind introduction. Um, So Global Forecaster um, was really started in the middle of 2019. Um, And at that stage, I concluded that the work and predictions um, made in breaking the code of history were really coming to fruition in this decade as the commodity K-wave cycle really hit its stride and essentially created entropic waves throughout our nations and economies and markets that required a very different perspective to survive and optimize. Um, So Global Forecaster provides a a top-down geopolitical construct, which has been incredibly accurate over the past 20 years. We predicted every election result in the US and the UK. We predicted, uh, for example, the Ukraine conflict well before others, and that it was inevitable, as indeed um, we predict that China will expand into South Korea via North Korea and Taiwan in the months and uh, time ahead of us. Um, All of this is driven essentially by the K-wave cycle and understanding that commodity cycle is the drumbeat of conflict, inflation, 
And we've now entered a new phase where that inflation is going to really, really march forward to much higher levels than the ones we currently experience. Our market uh, breakdown allows us to look at a strategic overview in our Arkan scenarios, which is, you know, the big geopolitical impacts, which we think are coming into markets and affect them. And also we look at the asset classes, how they dovetail together and how and, and how best to take advantage of what we see. Um, and then that also translates into individual macro analysis of AT markets with buy and sell recommendations and risk rewards, which we track and we measure our alpha extraction, much as a hedge fund would measure its returns, enabling any of our clients to translate those recommendations into alpha generation. And also to assess whether we've been hot and cold, why we've been hot and cold, and how then best to take our advice. And then the highest level is a combination of all of our subscription-based information and then a personal consultancy in terms of my experience as a CIO for nearly 20 years of a hedge fund and interchanging with our clients to make sure that they do really understand what's going on and to answer questions that maybe we haven't considered uh, in their strategies that help them maximize their output. So all in all, it's a complete package. It's designed to have a 360-degree radar across the big geopolitical impacts and also to correlate those in terms of timing in markets and price patterns that correlate entry points, large trends and exit points. And our track record over the past two and a half years, I have to say, has exceeded anything um, that I managed to achieve when I was actually CIO and managing money. And we had some very significant returns. For example, in 2008, we made 84%. Um, and in fact, every big dislocation that took place, we made um, huge returns from. So it's an area that uh, we've been very successful in. And we also called the high of the NASDAQ precisely at um, 167.40. Um, the call was made at 150 um, or 1500. Uh, and since then, we believe we are now in the collapse of what we call the doomsday bubble. There's a lot going on. Uh, and I'm afraid the war in Ukraine is not going to go the way the West hopes with all sorts of implications. So plenty to talk about. And uh, hopefully you'll um, engage with our website initially where you'll find a lot of information and then come through contact me and I can give you more details about how we can help you. So what are the implications of the Kondratiev K-Wave commodity super cycle for inflation and for investors in government bond markets over the next five years? So uh, the, this K-Wave cycle basically started in 2000. Uh, we were able to trade it very effectively. And, and, and in that first wave up to 2010, um, at roughly different commodities had peaks of different, it's called the A wave. Uh, that was the inflation recycle where commodities had been moribund and they moved to front and center at the peak of 2010. I think you remember food riots and the Arab Spring all triggered by the constriction of demand. Um, and then we were able to call the B wave, which is essentially the corrective cycle, which took place roughly from 2010, 2011 into the low of March 2020. That's the B wave counter trend inflation, which is why inflation really remained very low despite massive money printing. And then finally, we've got the C wave, which is a very scary beast indeed. We're talking about um, price peaks into 25 and 27, which are of the order of two to three times higher than the similar peak in 75. So when we make the analogy of inflation and the dynamics of the 70 to 75 period into the peak and then rolling over from 75 to 80, the whole decade in effect. They are very similar to the situation we find ourselves in now with a couple of exceptions. The peak is going to be three to four times higher. So we're talking about 
unimaginable inflation consistently in Western societies and resource competition from the West and between China. That is the trigger for conflict because make no mistake about it. The the drumbeat of war is this particular commodity cycle in its sea wave and we're well and truly in it. In the case of Putin, his belligerence derives from the wealth that came from that cycle. In the case of China, the competition between China and the West will actually accelerate it into a phase of conflict to secure its resource chains. So as far as bond investors are concerned, keep thinking that the 10-year rates got to 15%, basically at the top of the 75 peak, which is about 15% on CPI. So zero real return, interestingly enough. And think of this one as much, much bigger and compounded by the money printing process and compounded also by the mechanism where our manufacturing process that we outsource to China is going to come back in our face when the second Cold War basically starts up with China and and the two systems bifurcate. So there's a lot to think about and none of it's positive. And somewhere in that, we're going to see Western debt crisis as well. So how does the K-wave commodity cycle influence your five stages of empire model And what are the implications of this for commodity producing countries and commodity consuming countries in the next 30 years? So very interesting. So let's just look at the intersection between the five stages of empire model, which currently is saying that America is in the terminal stages of decline. That's in the last decade of its decline. Um, And essentially, Europe is in the same state. And Britain actually is in the second stage of expansion, the only expansive system in the Western world, which leads to all sorts of interdynamics. For example, the unraveling of the special relationship into something more equal, I think, is something we can accept. If you go back to 75, when America faced very high levels of commodity inflation and competition at the peak of the Cold War, uh, its economy was creaking and shaking. And in terms of the cycle of empires, it was very close to the peak of its cycle. So it was very resilient and strong as it went through that. Facing the same um, cycle in the K-wave when America is actually the bottom is going to create completely different dynamics. Just doesn't have the resilience to survive and it's overprinted money and it's over commoditized its debt. So I think the ramifications are absolutely huge. What is interesting is that drumbeat of conflict in this 54-year cycle has essentially created a process whereby America is at its weakest when China is in well and truly in the second stage of expansion. And that drumbeat is, is causing greater and greater aggression. And what we're seeing on the other side is American weakness in the form of Biden's leadership, which is just the weakest of a series of weak presidents. So it's, it is really like the short-term, relatively short-term signal that puts more and more pressure on a declining system and creates the wave, a series of entropic waves, which are really difficult for the system, both politically, geopolitically, militarily, and also market-wise to really to survive. And that's the environment that investors have to cope with right now. Nothing will have prepared them for this. Most investors have, you know, 15 years of track record in the beta trend of printing money, and this is completely different. So Global Forecasters here to explain that, help our clients navigate through situations that they are not familiar with, um, and only historical understanding can place this experience in that context. So given this more hostile bilateral relationship between China and the U.S., Uh, Are we now stuck in a world which is of increasing polarization and deglobalization? And what does this mean for the US dollar and for equity markets? 
So in terms of, um, you know, are we are we deglobalizing? We have deglobalized and we're in the process of bifurcating into a, a world of the autocratic systems, China and Russia, and some of its small allies and essentially the democratic Western um, Asian construct. So we are no longer in a global world. We're in a bifurcated world and it's happening all around us who wake up. So people who've still got their money and influence in China, they're going to be lucky to have their fingers when they, the door slams. And that has all sorts of implications everywhere from the supply chain up to, as you mentioned, currencies. I mean, what does this mean for the dollar? It means that its hegemonic status is over. It's already over, just the market hasn't realized it. And I think we're very close to a peak in the dollar index somewhere around here where the dollar starts a very significant slide. That slide will be coincident with equities. Now, for the equity market, um, what I kind of really described is the doomsday bubble, which is the the bubble created by the defensive mechanism of an empire like America in decline, who has lost its competitiveness, lost its productivity. But what it does do is it leverages incremental growth multiple times. And, you know, an argument would be that the bottom of the 0103 cycle, America learned to leverage itself three times. By the bottom of 08, it was sort of leveraged eight times. And I would say right now it's leveraged about 40 times and you just can't keep leveraging something when the underlying growth is incremental. And I always love the question and any economists out there, please answer this. Tell me what the real unleveraged growth of America is if you extract that leverage and it's probably minuscule in tenths of a percent. And anyone who knows what it's like to manage a leveraged portfolio, they look great when they're going the right way, but they turn on you on a dime and they really murder you. And that's really the parallel for America right now. And so the stock market has already peaked. The Nasdaq's peak on um, the 22nd of November, which we call precisely and well in advance, is the high of the of the doomsday bubble. And we're now accelerating downwards. And the key agent that changes this idea that Fed is the backstop is essentially inflation is rampant and out of control. And the Fed have no levers because if they raise rates, they're basically going to kill the stock market. If they don't do it, the stock market falls anyway. So the Fed's backstop has disappeared and very few participants have worked that out. And that means as we slide lower one by one, the pain will increase. And I think the chances of a, a market dislocation, aka a crash, are very, very high in the weeks and months ahead as the reality of this non-hegemonic status of America hits home in every aspect. Given this bifurcation in the world economy, superficially, Brexit and global Britain seem to be a, a mistake, a, a sort of further slip down the slope of national decline from Great Britain to Little England. I would actually take a completely different perspective. Um, so if we were still chained to the EU, the EU is, is moribund and in terminal decline too. Uh, its demographics are negative. It has absolutely no underlying growth patterns and only its relative size and assimilation and more dynamic you know, um, Eastern economies with positive populations have incrementally kept it around. Britain separated, and it's separated because it is the only system that I can isolate in the five stages of empire model, actually, is now going into the second stage. And Brexit was a regional civil war, the transition between regionalization and expansion, where, where the system seeks more lateral leadership so it can adapt and expand. Now, if Britain hadn't unleashed itself, I can tell you two very different circumstances. One is obviously we were very successful with our national energy through the vaccine rollout. 
which is indicative of exactly that process, release of lateral creative energy. Most importantly, I firmly believe Ukraine would now be totally under Russian influence if Britain hadn't have led the charge and, and, and given the 4,000 end-laws to the, to the Ukrainian forces, which fundamentally changed the balance of power because of the way the Russians advanced down roads and narrow, narrow uh, chains of communication. Um, military history is one of my you know, really hot areas, and we've done an awful lot of work to explain that process in Global Forecaster for our readers to understand that that window that allowed the Ukrainians to hold back the Russians does not exist, and especially with the adaptations the Russians are making in the East. So that that is looking very unfavorable for the Ukrainians, and I think um, victory beckons for Putin in the East, and then he'll go north again, and he'll go west, and the next will be will be a NATO country. Do you feel that the situation in Ukraine will eventually threaten peace and prosperity across the whole of Western Europe? I think it already is, David. Uh, and something that everyone seems to be completely ignoring is uh, the, the peace through the Cold War was underwritten by mutually assured destruction, this idea that if you nuke me, I nuke you, we all die together. Um, and Putin has been, since 2007, working on ways and weapon systems to really address the asymmetric power of NATO and overcome it. So if you look at his choices of weapon systems, they are all quite innovative and designed to maintain, A, Russia's nuclear deterrent at the highest level, but also how to create a sort of bubble inside which he is insulated from NATO intervention and then can get away with what he wants to conventionally. And that concept was called nuclear de-escalization, which is the idea that if my conventional conflict isn't going well or I think it won't go well, I threaten to use or use a small nuclear weapon. And I show my intention is greater than the intention of the Western leaders because they're fundamentally weak. And that was a concept that actually the Soviet Union had for a long time up until Thatcher's demonstration of intention over the Falklands. Unfortunately, we don't have Thatcher-esque people. And Putin has used that bubble and threat to keep NATO from intervening conventionally within Ukraine and giving him free reign. And I'm afraid whatever happens in Ukraine, that construct now exists. The perception of Western weakness and that nuclear weapons can be used to threaten and create spaces of operation conventionally for an aggressor. So we none of us can sleep well if you understand what that really means. I think the, the conflict in, in Ukraine will ultimately go in favour of Putin unless we truly intervene with aggressive, with offensive weapons on a scale we just haven't done at the moment. Uh, and I think loitering munitions like switchblades are critical to that. Um, but we're not doing enough and we're not doing it quickly enough. So I think the net effect of that is Ukraine will act like a petri dish to the Soviet, to the, to the Russian forces, and they will iron out the inconsistencies in performance that become highly capable. And then the shoe's on the other foot because now you have a capable adversary. They've learned to overcome a number of new weapon systems. And that's when they come knocking at NATO's door at the same time that China goes for Taiwan and South Korea. So I think this is like a sort of deck of cards folding in front of us, much as Czechoslovakia was really the first stage of World War II. You could argue actually Manchuria was, but let's just say in Europe it was Czechoslovakia. I think Ukraine holds the, the same position. And we have not proven in the West to be decisive or bold enough to actually nip it in the bud. Um, so sadly, the dominoes are falling in front of our eyes. And the thing that makes it worse is the commodity inflation cycle is really just beginning to move, which means Putin will get richer. His economy will not collapse. 
This sanction process is like taking a knife to a gunfight. A commodity-producing country in the top of a K-wave cycle is the most powerfully immune system because it's inflation-hedged and it makes more and more money every year while the consumer societies become poorer. And China, on the other hand, has a desperation for those resources and will need to fight to secure its supply chain. So this this drumbeat of conflict is only getting louder and louder and it will only get worse. And its inevitability is so high because of the weakness of Western leadership that all investors have to really understand and factor it in. If we look to Russia's longer term future beyond Putin, it's a commodity producing country with a petro economy. And it's facing some mega trends that will redefine its future. They have a combination of poor demographics, there's global warming, and there's net zero carbon 2050. Now, will those factors encourage Russia to rejoin the family of civilized nations and the world economy, at least eventually? Look, I think, so let's just look at what are our big challenges. The big challenges we have are the K-wave cycle crisis of inflation, of commodity um, competition, uh, which ultimately leads in all likelihood to a global war of some kind before 2025, possibly into 26, the peak. And that is going to redefine the map because after that, either democracies will have succumbed to autocracies. And I think at the rate we're going, there is a real risk of that that we could be on the cusp or on the living in the, the twilight days of global democracy to be replaced by autocratic power. Um, if democracy, as one hopes, and that requires mobilization on every front now, survives, uh, and if it really mobilizes, deters that conflict, then there will still be a mechanism of a standoff between autocracy and democracy. But as we roll down the back of the peak, and let's assume the optimal outcome, there is no conflict, Russia will once more, as it did from 75 into 1990, become poorer because the resource cycle starts to go down and the consumer societies will start to become richer because their inflation levels drop. And so there will be a positive period at the back of that. And that positive period is most likely when we will manage to address climate change because you've got to assume that we've come to the conclusion, if we've got that far, that conflict is not the option and that we found another way to work and be together, um, without which I think the human race has a, a very, very short lifespan of decades at the rate we're going. So I think on a big philosophical level, this is the, this is the decade I call consciousness or catastrophe. We either realise that this habitual process of fighting wars to re-energise our societies to be more effective and remove sequestered societies is replaced essentially by a process whereby we find competition without war and we work in different ways together. So I think this decade is, is, is defining for mankind. And that was the other reason why I created Global Forecaster, because if I'd just gone off and set up another hedge fund, which was an option and been successful and made lots of money, I couldn't transmit this bigger picture and its understanding, which then cascades down to the day-to-day management of your portfolios in such a way as it's an integrated perspective that makes a difference. David, many thanks for this fascinating insight into the service that is provided by Global Forecaster. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your views on the outlook for China and what lies beyond the leadership of Xi Jinping. It would also be interesting to discuss the possible ramifications of the upcoming elections in Europe and the United States in the next two years. 
The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Global Forecaster Service and can also provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with David Murrin of Global Forecaster. Global Forecaster.